Hello, and welcome to the City Church Evansville podcast. My name is Sean Little, and I'm the community and teaching pastor here at City Church. Thank you for joining us. Today, we continue in our new series, Collide, where we see human emotions in the Psalms. Last week, we considered the emotion, doubt. And this week, lead pastor Jeff Kincaid turns our attention to fear as found in the Psalms. Well, happy Father's Day, guys. Great to have all of you dads, new dads, uh, dads that have been around for a while, granddads, glad to have all of you guys. I hope that you have a terrific Father's Day. And I thought that in honor of Father's Day, we ought to start with some dad jokes. You guys all on board for some dad jokes? Okay, dads, I want to hear you guys laugh hysterically at these because I, as a father, endorse these dad jokes. Here's the first one. Hear about the man who fell into the upholstery machine? He's fully recovered. Get it? Get it? Here's one. I bought some shoes off of a drug dealer. I don't know what they were laced with, but I was tripping all day. A book just fell on my head. I've only got my shelf to blame. That's a good one there. I could use that one at home. And then finally, we'll end with this one. The first time I got a universal remote control, I thought to myself, this changes everything. (laughs) Show dads your appreciation this morning. We're so glad, dads, that you're here today. Last week, we began a new series that is called Collide. We're talking about emotions. We're talking about where emotions meet truth in the Psalms, and really, The question that we're asking in this series is, what should you do with your emotions? One popular approach, often among uh, religious people, is to deny emotions, repress them. Some religions, Buddhism, for example, would say that emotions are part of the problem. They're part of the, uh, uh, they're an obstacle to spiritual growth and development. And so Buddhism attempts to get rid of all of, of emotions. Another approach that's very popular in our culture today is to indulge our emotions, to let them control you, to define you, to see them as truth. Whatever you feel must be true, and so you must, therefore, do it. But as we said last week, the Bible argues for an altogether different approach to our emotions. First, the Bible argues that your emotions are real, but they're not necessarily true. You have emotions, everyone does, don't pretend otherwise, don't try to deny them, but they're not necessarily true, are they? I mean, like when you were a kid, you really did experience fear that there were monsters under your bed. It's a real emotion, it just wasn't true, was it? And so because our emotions are real, but not necessarily true, the Bible says that our emotions must be processed. Now, last week, we kicked this series off talking about doubt, but today I want to talk about fear. How do you acknowledge fear without letting it paralyze you? I'd like to ask you, if you would, to turn with me in your Bibles. Maybe you've got an old school copy of the Bible like this one. Turn to Psalm 3. It's in the Old Testament. And just find Psalm 3. Maybe you've got a new uh, digital version of the Bible, electronic version of the Bible. Just turn to Psalm 3. I want you to find that. And I want you to know that besides the fact that the Psalms are inspired by God, which of course is in and of itself the most important thing, the Psalms are one of the best places in all of literature 
to see how to process emotions because they are so chocked full of emotions. There's no attempt in the Psalms to airbrush reality. The Psalms present a full range of emotions that human beings experience, including sadness, delight, wonder, awe, anger, and even fear. Before we actually look into this psalm, I want you to understand how important it is that you and I learn to process our emotions biblically. For instance, fears run amok are the cause of an increasing number of anxiety disorders. Listen to this. Over 40 million Americans struggle with anxiety and women are twice as likely as men to be diagnosed with anxiety disorders. It's an important thing to deal with. And it's not just adults. Kids are increasingly being, being diagnosed with anxiety disorders. About a month ago, the Royal Society for Public Health in England published the results of a survey that found that social media is a major cause of depression and anxiety in kids. Now, let me ask you something. What forms of social media do you think were the worst forms of social media? Anybody want to take a guess? Somebody say, say it clearly. Facebook. Facebook, somebody said? YouTube. Somebody said Instagram. Here's what they were. The two worst forms of social media for kids that caused the most depression and anxiety among kids were Instagram and Snapchat because they deepen young people's feelings of inadequacy and anxiety. I want to tell you something. I'm not young, and last fall, I was on Instagram for a short period of time. I had to get off of it because, in part, I felt depressed that my life wasn't as great as everybody else's on Instagram. I get what they're saying here. Fear can be debilitating if it's unprocessed. It can create anxiety disorders. Someone once wrote that worry is a thin stream of fear trickling through the mind. If encouraged, it cuts a channel into which All other thoughts are drained. Fear can actually paralyze us, can it? It can overcome us. It can debilitate us. So as we look at Psalm 3, I hope you'll pay very close attention to what the psalmist says about how to process fear. Now right away, before you even get into the psalm, we're told that this is a psalm of David. Now, David, I want you to understand, was a man's man. This is a man who once fought a lion and once fought a bear with his own hands and won. I think you would agree that's a man's man. Everybody agree with me on that? He stood up to a giant named Goliath. We sang about this just a little while ago, and he won. He was a brave and a valiant soldier who then became the king of Israel. Now, we're also told... The context of this psalm is when he fled from his son, Absalom. Now, you can read the background for yourself later in 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 18, but let me just summarize this for you. One of David's sons was a young man named Absalom. Absalom had a great deal going for him. He was very good looking. He was charming. And I kid you not, the Bible actually says this, that he had great hair. (laughs) He was also a great politician. And Absalom took advantage of all of this and began a campaign 
to steal the throne from his father David. Now maybe the best way to get a sense of how he went about this campaign would be to compare, let's say, Prince William, Duke of Cambridge, with his father, Prince Charles. William and Kate, his wife, they're both young, they're beautiful, they're charming. Comparatively speaking, Prince Charles seems sort of old and out of touch and stuffy. Would you agree? Well, Absalom very carefully made his father David look like Prince Charles, old and out of touch with the people of Israel. And he succeeds in turning the people against his father, culminating in a day that he led a very very carefully planned coup against his dad. He declared himself king, which caused his father David to have to flee the capital and escape to the wilderness in fear for his life because Absalom's army was out to kill him. This is the context. This is where David was, out in the wilderness, afraid for his life, when he penned this psalm. And let's start reading from verse 1. David says, O Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to highlight two kinds of fear that David is is experiencing here that I think we can all relate to. And then I want to talk to you about how to process those fears. So first, let me highlight these two kinds of fears that David is experiencing. In verse 1, David expresses physical fear. He's literally in fear for his life. He says, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? That phrase, how many of my foes, excuse me, how many are my foes, is a word that actually means that he has 10,000 foes who are literally trying to kill him. Now, you know what physical fear is like. You don't need to have 10,000 people after you trying to kill you to understand what it means to feel physical fear. Maybe there is someone in your life who's intimidating you physically. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's somebody else. If you're a student, maybe it's somebody at school. And you're physically in fear. You know what that's that's like. Or maybe you're in fear today of a disease or a cancer of some kind that is threatening your life. That's physical fear. You know what that's like. That's where David is in this passage. He's literally afraid for his life. But there's a second kind of fear that David expresses here that I think can be just as terrorizing and perhaps more destructive. And I'm going to call it this, existential anxiety. Can I use that term? Existential anxiety. Let me explain. This is a more... Uh, This is more of a psychological and spiritual kind of fear. One was a physical fear. This is more of an internal, psychological, spiritual kind of fear. This is the kind of fear that strikes at the very core of your sense of self. Like at the core of your identity, who you are, your sense of significance, your sense of value, meaning, purpose, worthiness as a human being. And I want to show you what I mean here. In verse 2, David moves from physical fear, and he says that people are saying that God will not deliver him. Now, here's why they're saying God will not deliver him. Prior to David, there was another king in Israel whose name was Saul. Saul disobeyed God in some very serious ways, and as a result, God removed his crown, and he gave it to David. 
Now, what's happening is that these people are saying that the very same thing is happening now to David. They're saying, look at all of the ways David has sinned. For instance, David, has, David had an affair with a woman by the name of Bathsheba. And then he tried to cover it up by killing her husband. He can't be our king, they're saying. God is abandoning David just the way he did Saul. And this is creeping into David's mind. Like, what if I never get the throne back? Who am I if I'm not the king? If you think about it, everything that a man or a woman might put his or her identity in, everything that a person might get their sense of value and significance from, all of this has been stripped away from David in this circumstance that he's in. For instance, his career as a king, um, that's gone, at least for now. Some people get their identity from their popularity, from the social circles they run in. Nope, David's own people are now trying to kill him. How about power? Some people really get a sense of meaning and worth and significance from, from power. Well, David's running scared for his life. That doesn't smell like power to me. How about his role as a, as a father? Some people, men, women alike, Get their identity from being great parents. Well, it's kind of hard to say that you're the father of, your, of the year when your own kid is trying to kill you. How about, how about a man of, uh, being a man of great character, of great morality? Some people get a sense of, of, uh, of value and pride uh, and, and a sense of identity from being a person of great moral character. Well, Sorry. Not even that for David. He had an affair with Bathsheba. Killed her husband. Nope, that's, that's gone too. Everything that David might have derived an identity from has been completely stripped away from him here. Now because it's Father's Day, I want to I say something to men. We all struggle with fear much more than we like to acknowledge. I mean, we do struggle with physical fears, certainly, of course. But we also struggle with this existential anxiety, too. For instance, let's be honest. We all worry about measuring up as a man. Every one of us men. We fear being inadequate. Can I do the things that a man is supposed to be able to do in this world? Am I worthy of respect as a man? Many of us didn't have fathers who told us That we have what it takes to be good, courageous men. Perhaps they even told us just the opposite. And so we spend a great deal of time trying to fight this fear off and pretending like we don't struggle with this fear, don't we? Trying to pretend that we're confident and capable and that we're sure about our capacity to be the men that we're supposed to be. This is why our careers often are not the sacred places that God intended them to be where we can contribute to God's work by using our gifts and our talents and abilities, but instead our careers become proving grounds. They become places where we can prove that we have value. Our work becomes our identity. It becomes how we know ourselves. 
We struggle with fear, don't we, men? This existential anxiety. But women experience this existential anxiety too. Work can become a woman's identity just as much as it can become a man's identity. Existential anxiety is why many women, as they age, turn to plastic surgery. Their identity is actually being threatened. They've always found their identity in their beauty. This existential anxiety is why many young women obsess over finding a husband. That's what they think will give them a sense of identity. It's also why moms often become controlling. Their lives have been built around their children being good, being okay, excelling. And so they have to make sure that they control their kids' lives to ensure that they are good, okay, and always excelling. Because if they're not good, okay, and always excelling, what does that say about mom? This is where David is. Everything that he might have placed his identity in has been stripped away, and he's experiencing this existential anxiety. What would you do if you were in David's shoes? Would you deny your fears, or would you indulge your fears? Would you let them become debilitating, panic attacks, paralyzing anxiety? What would you do? Well, this brings me to the second thing that I wanted to talk about today, and it's how to process your fears. We all have fears. Some of them are physical. Some of them are existential. We all have them. How do you process these fears? And I want to give you three things that you can do to process your fears. And I want to give guys, men, I want you to hear this. I want, you to, I want to give these three things to you from a man who once fought a lion and once fought a bear with his bare hands and won. This is how he processed fear. This, men, this is how we're to process fear. Women, this is how we're to process fear. Students, this is how we're to process fear. It's how all of us are to process fear. Here's what he does. First, remember the character of God. First part of verse 3. David says, but you are a shield around me, O Lord. He's remembering the character of God. The problem for many of us that when we experience fear is that we often allow fear to stop us from living life. We allow fear to intimidate us, to beat us down. We allow fear to discourage us, to keep us from taking risks that we know we need to take, from taking stands that we know we need to take, from making mistakes, from giving up control. We allow fear to intimidate us. This is what Franklin Delano Roosevelt said in his first inaugural address. You know this old saying, we have nothing to fear, he says, but fear itself. Because the fear of fear, the reason he says that, is that the fear of fear can absolutely paralyze us. Max Lucado once wrote, Fear doesn't want you to make the journey to the mountain. If he can rattle you enough, fear will persuade you to take your eyes off the peaks and settle for a dull existence in the flatlands. Wouldn't you like to be able to live life without the fear of fear? Now, again, no one is going to live without fear. We all fear. There's an old saying, though, that says that 
Heroes are people who are afraid to go, but go anyway. What if fear didn't have to paralyze you? What if you could be like that? One of those people who's afraid, but go anyway. The only way to not let fear paralyze you is to remember the character of God. This is what David is doing when he says that God is a shield around him. The word shield is a metaphor, of course, that represents here the character of God that is protecting David from debilitating fear as long as David continues to remember the character of God. And so David reminds himself of this, that in the midst of this situation, for instance, that he is surrounded on all sides. Did you notice what he says about this shield? He said, he didn't say you're a shield to me. He says, you're a shield around me. It's all the way around him, he says. And so he reminds himself for instance, that he is surrounded on all sides by God's love that is greater than all of the things that he's done wrong. And so all of these things that people are saying, God will not deliver him because of what he's done. David is saying, I know that my God loves me despite everything that I've done. He reminds himself that he's surrounded by God's power, which is greater than the power of the 10,000 that are coming at him. And by the way, even if they kill him physically, God's power is even greater than the power of death. David reminds himself here with this metaphor of the shield that he's surrounded by a God that is for him, not against him. And so his fear doesn't overtake him. It doesn't paralyze him. It doesn't become debilitating. Instead of obsessing about his fear, he spends his mental energy remembering the character of God. Now listen to me. I understand that some of you think to yourselves, well, that's really churchy. We're in church. He's going to give us a churchy answer about how to deal with fear. That's, that's really churchy. Well, let me ask you something. How else are you going to deal with fear? I mean, you could say, I could tell you, I could say, well, you know what? Every time you feel fear, snap a rubber band on your wrist and you won't feel fear. Big deal. What's that going to do? The only way to not let fear paralyze you is to know that there is someone who is greater than all the things that you fear. And that's God. To know that someone is, a, is for you who's greater than all of these things, whose power is greater, whose love is greater. That's the only way I know. To not let fear paralyze you. Do you do that? Do you remember the character of God? See, this stuff doesn't happen automatically. The only way to become the kind of person that doesn't allow fear to paralyze you is to continue to rehearse the character of God in your mind when you feel these fears. It's the only way. Christian truth doesn't change you if all you do is hear it. You have to continue to preach it to yourself over and over and over again in your mind. And so David, instead of thinking about all of the what-ifs that might happen, instead of that, he focuses on the character of God. So remember the character of God. Here's the second thing. David does it. Remember where glory comes from. Remember where glory comes from. This is the last part of verse 3. David says, you bestow glory on me and lift up my head. Now, David 
Remember, he's experiencing this existential anxiety because everything that he might derive his identity from has been stripped away from him. And he says, God, I'm afraid, but you bestow glory on me and lift up my head. Now, what does that mean? Well, the word glory really is the thing that all of us are looking for. Glory is a word that means to be weighty, to be substantive, to be significant. Something that is substantive and weighty and significant has value. It isn't ephemeral. It can't just up and fly away in a moment. This is what we're all looking for. We want to know that we are significant, that we have value. What's happening here is that David is reminding himself that he's been looking for glory a sense of value, a sense of identity, a sense of significance in things that are too easily lost. Careers and people and power and popularity can all be lost in a moment. David reminds himself that the only one who is weighty enough, who is substantive enough, who is significant enough to give him glory is God himself. And so he says, It's not their approval, it's your approval, God, that is my glory. It's not my career, it's my relationship with you that is my glory. It's not power that is my glory, it is your power that gives me glory. And he says, this lifts my head up. This is what I boast in. This is where my identity comes from, he says. If I have your approval, if I have your honor, if I know you're proud of me, then I don't have to be uh, really afraid. And so what he's doing is reminding himself of where glory comes from. It doesn't come from jobs or people or any of that stuff. It, It comes from God. Now, again, I know what you're thinking. Oh, that's such a sweet churchy answer. Can I ask you something? Where else are you going to derive your value from that is going to give you a constant sense of value? You say to me, my career. Let me tell you something. Your career can be gone in a moment. You say to me, well, it's, my, it's, it's, it's the approval of certain people in my world. Let me ask you something. What happens when they die? Does your value go away? Of course it does then. What happens if they change their mind? I'm going to tell you something. If there's one thing I've learned in ministry, it's that people who say that they're your friend can change in a moment and become your worst enemy and even go out on the internet and say really nasty things about you to the newspaper. I've experienced that. I'm just saying it can happen. How about your power? How about your wealth? Ask people who invested their money with Bernie Madoff a number of years ago. $65 billion gone like that. What happens when all of that disappears? If that's where your value is, then your value plummets. The question is, is there a way to know that you have value that is constant, that never changes, that's eternal? It's not ephemeral. It doesn't doesn't leave. It doesn't get up and fly away. Is that possible? Tell me. What else do you know that you can put your identity in that doesn't fly away? Now again, I could tell you, well, you know what? When you begin to feel bad about yourself, just snap a rubber band. 
Or remind yourself of all the people who love you. Or look in the mirror and say, what is it, what is it the guy on Saturday Night Live used to say? When he'd look in the mirror, he'd say, I'm, I'm good enough. I'm, what does he say? Anybody remember? Yeah, so Saturday Night Live. And say, so anyway, he'd say something like, I'm good enough, I'm nice enough, and gosh darn it, people love me. Well, you could do that. Are you that self-validated that that will mean something to you? Look, I can't, I can't think of anything else that you can get your identity from that isn't ephemeral in this world except the eternal one. That's the only, only one I know. To know that he's for you, to know that he loves you, to know that he's proud of you, to know that he accepts you. Logically, it's the only place that I can think of that you can derive identity from that won't change. Remember where glory comes from. That's what David does. So he remembers God's character. He remembers where glory comes from. And then here's the third he says, remember your substitute. Remember your substitute. Now, see, when I was talking about just a moment ago, I was saying, you know, boy, how, how great it is to know that God loves you, that he's for you, that he approves of you, and uh, that he accepts you, and, and, and all of those things, that he's proud of you. You might have been wondering, well, how do I know that God is for me and not against me? How do I know that he's proud of me? How do I know that he approves of me? Well, I want you to think about David for just a moment. Here's a guy who has failed in his career as a king. He has failed as a father. He had an affair and he murdered a man to conceal it. And yet, he believes that God is proud of him and that he has God's approval. How can a man like that possibly know this? Look at what he says in verse four. He says, to the Lord, I cry aloud and he answers me from his holy hill. Did you see the confidence? Notice the confidence he has. He says, to the Lord, I cry aloud and I sure hope he answers me from his holy hill. Is that what he says? No, he says, I cry aloud and he answers me. That's definitive. Where does he get such confidence that God would answer the prayers of such a broken man as him? He says it right here. It comes from God's holy hill. What's on the holy hill that David is referring to? What's on that hill is the tabernacle. It's on Mount Zion. It is the place where Israel worships. And as a part of their worship, it is the place where they make sacrifices, things like cattle and lambs and the like, for their sins which separated them from the glory of God, from the approval of God, from the grace of God. So they make all of these sacrifices at this holy hill. Now, when you and I read this, we read this on the other side of the cross. We know that those sacrifices were to point Israel to a day, centuries later, when Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, would be sacrificed for the sins of humanity so that we no longer have to be separated from God. We no longer have to be separated from his approval. We no longer have to be separated from his glory and his grace. There on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ gave you a glory if you believe in him. He gave you a sense of identity, a sense of significance, an identity that could never up and fly away 
because it was nailed there permanently to a Roman cross. And here's your identity. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are now a member of the royal family. You've been bought and paid for by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You're a member of the family. That's your identity. That's your value. That's your significance. Because Jesus Christ is your substitute. Again, he nailed your identity to a cross. It can't move. It can't go go up and fly away. It's always there. Your identity, a member of the royal family, the family of God, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to look at the effect that this has on David, verse 5. Here this man is in danger of his life and all of these existential anxieties. And he says, I lie down and sleep. It's not keeping him awake at night. He says, I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. Why? Because he knows that he has a power behind him and for him that is greater than all of the power of the military that is coming after him. Arise, O Lord, he says. Deliver me, O my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. And what you see here in David is a man who was afraid, but who has a new sense of inner peace in the midst of dangerous circumstances and a new sense of hope and confidence in the justice of God. And I want you to know that as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, in a way that David never could have, you have this assurance even more that God is for you, not against you, because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. David knew this in a sense that he was anticipating something, but you've seen it happen. You know that Jesus Christ sweated in the garden because he was scared. But he didn't let that stop him and debilitate him. He went to the cross anyway. He obeyed all the way to death on a cross for you. That's how you process fear. It doesn't just happen automatically. Just hearing it this morning and walking away, next time you find yourself in a fearful situation, you're not going to all of a sudden just, you know, Lightning's not going to strike you, and all of a sudden you're going to go, I don't feel fear anymore. That's not going to happen. You have to preach this stuff. You have to internalize this stuff. Remind yourself of these things over and over and over again. Let me close with this. This was written by an anonymous monk late in his life. And I want want you to just listen because... I think you'll find that this is the life that you really want. He said this, he said, if I had my life to live over again, I'd try to make more mistakes next time. I would relax, I would limber up, I would be sillier than I have been this trip. I know of very few things I would take seriously. I would take more trips, I'd be crazier. I would climb more mountains, swim more rivers, and watch more sunsets. I would do more walking and looking. I would eat more ice cream and less beans. I would have more actual troubles and fewer imaginary ones. 
Isn't that the way you'd like to live? I would like to suggest that the only way that you can live that kind of life is if you continually remember the character of God who is your shield. And if you continually remember where glory comes from, it doesn't come from your job or your role as a parent or anything else. Glory only comes from God. And if you continually remember your substitute who nailed your identity to a cross, it's the only way you can live this kind of life. Would you bow with me for prayer? There is so much to fear in the world that we live in these days, Lord. So very much to fear. Seems like every time we turn on the TV, open the newspaper, something new has happened that brings fear, terror. And then, of course, there's all just the other ordinary things that we live with. The fear of how our kids are doing, what will happen to our kids. The fear of our jobs and will we lose our jobs and the fear of being able to pay the bills and all of those fears. And then, of course, the fears of illnesses and things that, that strike us, fear of death. Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that those that are here this morning that may live with the fear of death because they've never come to a place in their life where they have believed upon you, Lord, I pray that today would be a day that they would indeed recognize that they are a sinner. And Lord, that they would recognize that the only way to deal with those sins is a sacrifice. And that sacrifice is you, the the Lamb of God. And that when they believe in you, Lord Jesus Christ, that they have eternal life, they're believing in someone who defeated death. Death no longer has that power. Lord, I pray for the rest of those that may be dealing with significant fears this morning. Maybe they're physical, maybe they're existential in nature. Lord, I pray that you would use this passage to speak to them, that they would continually remember who you are, that they would continually remember where glory comes from, and that they would continue to look at their substitute who has given them an identity that can never change, a value, a weightiness, a glory that can never, ever change. We pray that you would speak to us this morning about that, that we would not see these as just churchy, answers, that we would see them as as eternal answers, the only way to live in a world full of fear without letting fear paralyze us. Thank you for the truths of Scripture, Lord. I pray that you would speak to us this morning and change us through these things. And it's in Christ's name that we worship and pray. Everyone has fear. I do. If you're honest with yourself, you do as well. And as we saw today, even David, the psalmist, has fear. But what we do with our fear, or rather, what we allow fear to do with us, is the distinction. We have to remember that all of our fears, or at least most of them, are temporary. And the ultimate fear is the fear of death. But what the cross shows us is that Christ has dealt with our fears, he's embodied our fears, and he's defeated death. That's why the cross 
changes everything, even our fear. Well, thank you for joining us at the City Church Evansville podcast. We'd love for you to join us in person on a Sunday at 9.15 or 11 a.m. at 314 Market Street in downtown Evansville.